You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Hi everyone, I'm Rachel. Uh, today we'll be reading from Philippians 1.27 to 2.11. Okay, so Philippians 1.27 only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign of the, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake." engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in, f- in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves." that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind amongst yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the points of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the true words of the living God. Testing. Thank you, Rachel, for reading scripture so beautifully for us. Uh, Welcome church to the third congregation of Redemption Hill Church. My name is Joseph. I am an elder with the third congregation and it is our third week in the Philippian sermon series. Now this book of Philippians was a letter that was initially delivered on behalf of Paul to this church in Philippi. It was a letter that was read out. So what Rachel has just kindly done for us is a very first century of her. And there's something about these verses, especially that little hymn from chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, that always grips me no matter how many times I hear it. It makes me want to know, who is this Jesus? If you are new to church today, or maybe you are an oldie who's attended for years, in just a few lines, you have heard the essential Christian story that the Son of God, who could not die, was born to die. He takes on the human curse. And yet, as a younger man, you will see on the screen my denim jacket NIV Bible. And what I highlighted was an earlier verse. I don't know if you can see, right? I put a blue highlight with two stars in ink, uh, very confident. That verse that says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition, or in the NIV, vain conceit. As a younger man, I didn't know that there was persecution or that this was a church in Philippi. The hymn about Jesus wasn't my focus. I just knew that selfishness and vain conceit was natural to me as breathing, and I hated it. I start this verse because I really wanted to be a better person, to be less selfish, um, less conceited, and that's not wrong, but I've come to see that that desire was so small and so shrunken, because if I had read on, Paul calls us to consider each other, but I was stuck on considering myself. I wanted to be really unselfish for my sake. When the vision of this passage that Rachel read is far bigger than me tidying my desires up for my sake. Because it's calling us not just away from fear and away from selfishness, but towards unity, towards Jesus Christ, and towards each other. So in this letter, Paul doesn't just expose the dangers of sin, though he does, but he also shows us the beauty of following and being near to Jesus. Friends, we have a little time today to take tiny toddler steps into the riches of God's word. Would you go with me to him in prayer? Father, we remember the birth of this church in Acts 16. 
we remember that you opened Lydia's heart to receive the words that Paul spoke about your son, Jesus Christ. So Father, would you not do the same for us today? Will you not open our hearts to receive your word of life to us? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your eyes, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Friends, um, we're in the third week. Let me give you some background, right? This is a letter that was read out to a young church, a church that Paul really, really loves and that has shown through in the past few weeks. But he was also writing from prison with great affection and with updates. He told them, I'm in chains, but the gospel has reached the Roman guards around me, the people who every day chain and unchain him, and his suffering has strengthened some of the brothers. So to this young but very healthy church, Paul makes a promise. I'll be back. I'm coming soon. Wait for me, my dear Philippians. I want to come and see you and serve you. But between Paul's affectionate letter and his actual arrival, many dangers line the way. And he has words for them that cannot wait for his uncertain arrival time. They have to hear it, and this is it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, whether I make it or not, whatever happens to me, of first importance is that you live lives worthy of fitting to the good news. This is Paul's first request. So far in the letter, he's been praising them, giving updates about him, but now he's speaking to them and calling them to respond because of their specific context. Two threats that they faced, persecution, the first bit of our letter, and then pride in chapter 2, the first four verses. These are problems outside and inside the church that are growing. And what they both have in common is that they tempt you to turn inwards. Okay, they tempt you to turn inwards when you see the threat or the temptation, to live a shrunken and small life that is always centered on yourself. Instead, Paul wants the gospel of Jesus to open them up to a fuller life, unselfish, unafraid, and united to God and each other. Friends, so far in our letter, the past two weeks with Simon, the gospel has shown through Paul's circumstances to produce beautiful fruit, and, and now he's turning that gospel spotlight upon the Philippians' lives to show them how to live. And I ask that you would let it spotlight our lives too. Let it fall on your life. What, what is it showing you? What is the man on the cross calling to you about today? How is Jesus inviting you to follow him? If you are a Christian, hear the call of Christ your Lord. And if you are not, thank you for being here. We invite you to listen in as we do what we love. We talk about Jesus. So this is the outline, and I should say from the start that uh, Sarah and the AV team do a great job. I was the one who was in charge of graphic design, so it's not great, but, but I hope it helps to guide you. There's two problems, persecution and pride, and then that's supposed to be a phone. Paul calls for unity, okay? So that's a big ask, right? He calls them to be unafraid and unselfish, and that's not easy, but then Paul sings, he sings to them from verse 5 onwards in this hymn that captures that story of Jesus. And as you hear it, as I read it, I went, I see why Paul calls them to be unafraid and unselfish because living like that is fitting to the good news of what Jesus has done. The hymn not only encourages them, it empowers them, it gets in them, in their hearts, in their blood, and calls them to be nearer and ever nearer to their Jesus. Now, I can't wait to get there, but let's start at the start. Let's start with persecution. Verses 27 to 30. Unity amidst persecution shows the gospel. There was persecution in Philippi, and this young church was under fire. Verse 30 says they are engaged in the same conflict that they saw and that Paul still has. So that's two clues, right? That point to jail and beating being their present experience. Why? What they saw, past tense, this is what they saw 10 years ago when Paul first came in Acts 16. He was beaten, then he was jailed. But it's what he still has, present tense. Right, right now, four times in the last two weeks, Paul has spoken of my imprisonment. So this is what the church is facing together with Paul. And yet, in verse 28, Paul says, Do not 
be frightened or terrified in anything by your opponents. I want you to see that Paul acknowledges their fear. He says, don't be frightened because fear is natural. Right? Being frightened is a very human mindset. As Ikyong was telling us about the global church around the world, I wonder how you would feel if you were someone in one of those restricted countries. It's very natural, human, to think those who are having it worse, I had better stay away from them because if not, I get dragged in. That's real. But having acknowledged that fear, Paul says, I want to hear that you stand firm in one mind, with one spirit, side by side, unity. Because your unity amidst your persecution shines forth the gospel. Your unity is going to show that God is at work because it is such unusual behavior from such ordinary people. Unusual behavior from ordinary people. Unusual behavior. Okay, so in any church, persecution is unevenly experienced. Some suffer more than others. Some lose homes, some are arrested, some are not. And that's terrifying. Being dragged out of your home at night is terrifying. And you could, you might steer clear of trouble by steering clear of others who are in need. But instead, Paul says, for the sake of Jesus, walk towards those in the fire rather than running away. Don't be afraid. Why? So that you can stand united like the brothers in verse 14 of chapter 1 who see Paul in prison, then stand with him by proclaiming the word more boldly. Stand side by side in persecution. That's what Paul says. And we might ask, does unity really show forth the gospel? Well, last year we preached through Acts 16 where Paul's first visit to Philippi landed him in prison. But God worked a miracle earthquake and immediately all the doors were open so the jailer wakes up and he's like they're gone my life is also gone and he wants to kill himself but paul cries with a loud voice do not harm yourself for we are all here do you see paul and his friend silas are free and yet they both stay out of concern for the jailer Th that's verse 27 of philippians they are side by side of one mind when any normal person would escape. If you're the jailer, you must have thought, are these guys okay? Like, who does that? Right? But that's the beauty of Christian unity. Silas staying together with Paul really matters because if it's just Paul, then maybe he's strange or special. But if his friend also stays, then, then what's, what's keeping them there is something that is shared not something special to Paul. We are not looking for a hero, but Christians standing together. Not the individuals, but the gospel that they share. The jailer can see there's something that Paul and Silas have that I don't. Is this Christ of whom they speak true? And when persecution doesn't intimidate, it can make those who are persecuting question. That's verse 28. Paul tells them, your unafraidness is a clear sign to your enemies of their destruction. Because when they see that God is at work, keeping you united, keeping you moving towards one another, then they are forced to stop and ask, am I opposing God if He's the one keeping these Christians together against the odds? That's what happens to our jailer. He sees both Paul and Silas stay and he realizes these men know someone that I don't. And that very night, the jailer and his household come to faith. Now friends, I know that our passage speaks of destruction because there are some who see Christians united and they dig their heels in deeper. And this passage says, God makes it plain to them, the one you are opposing is Christ, not just ordinary men. And the end is destruction. But I want to emphasize that some do turn to God. So please let me say this, okay? We who belong to Christ must fight persecution under the banner of reconciliation, not enmity. Christians, we are called to endure the treatment of enemies of the gospel, not lashing back but with long-suffering because we know that at any moment, those who are opposing God with all their might, like you and I did before He saved us, can also become recipients of the unstoppable grace of God. Our unity amidst persecution shows forth the gospel. 
But second, the ordinariness of these people shows forth the gospel. And I really love this part, okay? If it's only Paul, maybe he's the hero. But if the non-Christians in Philippi see their neighbours, the baker, the government worker, the jailer, the stay-at-home moms and dads, normal people who are clearly terrified but moving towards those in persecution, it makes them stop and think again, what do they have that I don't have? Because their lives are so ordinary that they must be bearing witness to something or someone else. Friends, remember, this church in Philippi is not a veteran church. It's a primary four church. They are 10 years old, right? They are younger than RHC. And yet, they remain side by side for the faith of the gospel. They have put the gospel first. Paul and the Philippians are not defending their lives or their comforts, but together they defend that same precious good news so that their persecutors see there is a strength and a joy in them that makes no sense given their circumstances. And they ask, what if, what if these Christians really belong to Jesus? I wonder what that would mean for me. Disciples are ordinary and weak, jars of clay. And that is the beauty of Christian discipleship. Because left to myself, there's no way I'm unafraid. But I'm not left to myself. I belong to Jesus and to you. And there's something about Jesus that would make frightened me walk into the fire of another brother's pain and suffering. It's not me, but there's something about Jesus. So when ordinary Christians stay united in the heat of persecution, going towards each other rather than running away, that's such unusual behaviour that we conclude God is at work. Now I know we don't experience persecution like this in Singapore often, and passages like this are a very important reminder that Scripture is not just our book, but it is our book. It should take our minds to Christians in other countries who are suffering for their faith, like Ekyong prayed. And also, it should call to us in Redemption Hill Church to practice moving towards each other when we know that it will cost us, that it will cost us dearly. Again, do you know others in church who have paid a price for gospel witness, maybe especially in the workplace or the home, where it's really cost them to be a Christian in their families? How can we see and move towards one another? How can we do that? We are not unafraid because we are some hero. We are ordinary people who have been loved by Jesus. And that teaches you and me to say, I'm scared, but I can see that you are scared as well. I love my life, but Jesus has taught me to love your life as well. So hold on, I'm coming. Doing that is a life that is worthy of the gospel, well fitted to its beauty and its truth. So that's part one, right? In persecution, move towards one another. Part two, instead of pride, move towards one another. Paul turns to the tensions within the church caused by self-important pride. And since we have heard about persecution, you can see now that this call, this verse that I read as a younger man, is actually made in the context of the local church. Paul is saying, church, you have received the riches of the gospel, chapter 2, verse 1, encouragement, comfort, participation, and fellowship, and I want you to respond to the gospel riches by putting away pride. That attitude that says, I'm more important than you. I matter more than you. Paul wants us to see that self-important pride is ugly and that self-forgetful unity is beautiful. First, self-important pride is ugly. His message in verse 3 is very simple but very forceful. Do nothing. Get as far away as you can from these two poisonous mindsets. Because if you recall last week, the petty preachers, they were preaching Jesus Christ out of selfish reasons to spite Paul. Think with me. They are talking about Jesus but thinking about themselves. How they sound, how they look, what they can gain. And how scary is that? But how relatable. Right? The analogy for this that is in my mind is, is permanent group selfie mode. Now, uh, maybe follow me with this, right? You know when you take group selfies, no one wants to be the one doing this because whoever holds the phone, their face is biggest in the frame. You follow me? And Paul is saying selfish ambition and vain conceit, they create a life where if your heart is a movie screen, 
you take up 90% of that screen because you are always in focus. You are always in frame. You are always front and center in your own life. Your needs, your concerns, how you feel, and you can't see the pain of others. You are so big in your life that you are miserable and people around you are miserable. You're always crushed when things don't go your way and you struggle to be happy for others because too much of your life revolves around you. Do you relate to that? We are not so unlike those petty preachers. Even as we serve, we can think, how does serving others serve me? Or even as I read the verse and I wanted to fight pride at 16, I remember thinking, how good am I going to be once I'm less self-absorbed? Think about that. Right, church, I want us to really hear this because unlike other letters, Paul is writing to a healthy church. In other words, he's not sounding the alarm because pride is a Philippian problem. He's sounding it because pride is an ever-present problem. Watch for it because we will not serve side by side if we are always trying to compare and climb above each other. Self-importance is that ugly. But Self-forgetful unity is, is beautiful. Paul presents a beautiful vision. He says, the one thing that would complete my joy is to see you guys, the church, united in defending and advancing the gospel, seeking to serve and to know each other's gospel interests. The context for considering each other is the gospel. Paul is not just saying care about what others care about, though that's good. Recall opening verse. This is about living a life that is worthy of the gospel. In the section on persecution, right, he says they are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So we are not just meant to ask, what does my neighbor like? We should ask, what does my neighbor, the person on your left, your right, in front, behind you, what do they need from me to love Jesus more? Then we give. We give though it cost, because love exerts itself. That is what Paul does when he considers the interests of the Philippians. He says in chapter 1, verse 25, I will remain and continue for your progress and joy in the faith. That, Paul says, is a worthy life. So he calls to them, you know, come together for the gospel. Be of the same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. That's verse 2 to see Christ formed in each other. My, my dear Philippians, Paul says, that is why you put pride away, so that you can actually pay attention to each other. I think we know how difficult that is, right? Not just listening to what people say and nodding, but even listening to what is unsaid. Really paying attention so we see that other people who say they are okay are really not okay. We want to be able to do that. It is so much bigger than what I imagine, just cultivating a private or personal virtue like a hermit. I put selfish ambition and vain conceit aside because that lets me see that God has placed each of us here to comfort and to correct and to make sacrifices so that those around us will keep following Jesus. So church, what does your neighbor need from you to love Jesus more? Please take time after service. The ballroom is yours ask each other this question, right? I can only scratch the surface, but I want to encourage you in one direction, and that is intergenerational CGs. Let me explain more. I know that peer CGs are easy, less to explain, more in common, and that is not wrong. Okay, I get it. And there are real bridges to cross if you want to have an intergen CG. Singles and those who are couples, kids and no kids, uh, whether you're studying or you're a fresh grad, working it out for a few years, many years, or retired, that can be difficult to bridge. But difficult as it is, intergenerational CGs are such a beautiful ground for gospel fruit because you are going to have to sit down each week and listen and say, our concerns are so different. But I want to look to your interests. I want to know you better so I can help you love Jesus more. And that's going to mean a lot of listening, a lot of messing up badly, needing to forgive each other, needing to learn and learn. But friends, we share the same gospel. We have the same Jesus, so it is right that we gather. And over time, that produces a church that is united not by personality type or life stage, but by the gospel that helps us love across difference. And I want to say also, 
that RHC, I see this self-forgetfulness in you. You know, the more I know people in this ballroom, the more I've been surprised that uh, so many of you are introverts. And I couldn't tell at first because you have welcomed people so warmly. You've been so intentional about chatting with people who sit alone after service and before service. You even make plans to reach out to people that you have seen, but you don't know their names. You've never spoken to them. And only after Kong Retreat last year when I got to know some of you better, then it was like an aha moment. I was like, oh, it terrifies you before you do that? And some Sundays it can drain you when you're done? And you have put that self-interest aside because you consider that for the sake of Jesus, welcoming and listening to people is bigger and more wonderful than your own comfort or discomfort. Some of you are drained when you do it. You've had tough weeks while you are praying for God to give other people strength. And I love you, and I thank God for that in you. I want to say, well done. And I want to say, if that has drained you, will you come and share it with us? Let us pray for you. Let us consider your interests, even as you consider the interests of others. At the end of last year, um, I was speaking to one of the mums here, and she said, leaving home is difficult on Sundays with the kids. But once I get to church, I feel like it will be okay. There will be people to help. And the reason why she can say that is because some of us are considering the interests of the young parents at the back. We are so glad they are here and we want to know if we can help. Church, we don't do this perfectly. Learning to look with eyes of love is a grace that we need to grow a lot more in. But I want you to know that I'm grateful for what I see in you. It's this sort of life, a worthy life, that Paul is calling the Philippians and calling us to live. Putting away pride. I say again, it's for so much more than private self-improvement. It's to grow gospel fruit in each other. And at the same time, we are all aware that selfish ambition and vain conceit still lurk in this church and in our hearts. Maybe for the past 10 minutes, um, you felt more ugly than beautiful. You know that there must be something better than everywhere you go, your first thought is, I wonder what people are thinking of me but you feel powerless to change. What is in our hearts when we are stuck that way? Can I suggest to you that we are often stuck in selfishness and self-importance, not just from sin, but also because we have been hurt. We have been taught, sometimes by people who really mean well, that your life is yours and you have to make something of it. And so all of life has been a non-stop proving that you matter, that's why you keep climbing. That's your ambition. Because if you're not successful or interesting or good-looking or filial enough, then any sense that you are a lovable or a worthy person is gone completely. And you're terrified of that. It happens in church as well. God only loves me if, if I read my Bible enough, if I serve enough. And so I'm always competing and I'm, I'm sick of it. I'm sick of being so wrapped up in myself, but I can't stop. If that's you, if that's your heart, the way out of endless ambition and self-serving is the gospel. The good news of what Jesus has done is what can draw you out of yourself towards God and each other. And that is why in verse 5, Paul starts singing. It's so important that he sings because all that I've said thus far, be unafraid, be unselfish, be united, that is not the gospel. That's our response to the gospel. That is a life that is lived worthy of the gospel. But the gospel is not what you or I have done or what we will do, but what Christ has already completed for us. And what changes our hearts and frees us from the endless pursuit of proving, proving, proving that we matter, that we deserve love, is the love of Christ. It's realizing that I'm not bigger or better than the person next to me, but Jesus has told me that I am beloved. Friends, this is the gospel. That is the help that they need and we need. This is why we want to preach the gospel every week, whether you're Christian for one day or 1,000 days. Hearing the gospel over and over is the only way we live lives unafraid, unselfish and united, fitting to the gospel. So turn with me as Paul sings to us in that hymn of verses 5 to 11, the gospel story of how God saves sinners. And Paul begins to tell it in verse 5, right? 
And he wants us to know that this life that we are going to hear about is that worthy life. This is how we are to live. So that's why he's been saying, be of the same mind, be of one mind. But in verse 5, he finally says, have this mind of Christ Jesus. We are not just pursuing single-mindedness with each other in this church, but with Christ. And Paul invites us to share that mindset of Jesus as he retells the gospel story of Jesus. He does this in three parts. Equality with God, then how Christ entered into our condition, even death, finally his exaltation. Paul tells us the story of Jesus. Equality. You see, Paul begins in verse 6, Christ is God, but takes the form of a servant. He was in the form of of God. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was like God in form but not in substance. If you read on, Jesus had equality with God. He was God. That's how our hymn begins. Jesus shared in the full and the essential reality of God, and yet he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he took the form of a servant. Though Jesus was God and so all the divine privilege, status, power are his to rightfully claim, he did not cling on to it. He did not grab on to his rightful privilege to serve his own interests, but he took, he entered more fully into service than any of us ever have or ever will. And that's how Jesus uses power to take on the full reality, the form of a servant. That's the first descent in this downward hymn. Jesus was God and Jesus was servant. But why and, and who does he serve? He enters our condition, even death. Verse 7, the one who is equal with God looks to our interests by entering our condition. He emptied himself, being born in the likeness of men. Now, that word empty doesn't mean that Jesus tips all the God out of him as if that were possible. But if you read on again, he empties himself to three action words, by taking, by being born, and by being found in the likeness of men. Christ emptied himself when he took on flesh, when he became human. So emptying is not Jesus losing divinity, but adding our humanity. So we sing fullness of God in helpless babe. He is fully God and fully man. I, I want to sit here for a moment, friends. The Son of God was born in our likeness for our sake. That is profound. He empties himself of that divine status by becoming one of us. So when I look to the back, I can say that the Son of God, the Creator, the Lord of all, I can say things about him that are also true of the babies at the back that cry and need soothing and wiping and feeding and cleaning. And we love this so much that it's in all of our best Christmas songs. This song says, For he is our childhood's pattern. Day by day, like us, he grew. He was little, weak and helpless. Tears and smiles like us. He knew. And I could go on, but his humanity is only the start of that descent. For even among humans, as a human, the Son of God takes the lowest place among humans. Hear his words in Matthew's Gospel. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus went so low to buy us out of sin's grip. He came down to us to serve us by saving us. And he did that knowing the cost. Jesus bore real wounds. For by entering creation, the Son of God puts himself at the disposal of sinners. He puts himself within reach of the ways that we hurt and harm one another. He descends into human suffering. Scripture records that Job called to God in his suffering and said, do you have eyes of flesh? Do you see as a mortal sees God? Do you suffer the way that I do? Do you hurt like I do? And Christmas reminds us, yes, we live in a world that is full of human violence and evil. And God does not just drop down answers to us from a cloud, but He Himself descends into the midst of human violence and evil and poverty 
so that God borrows flesh to become woundable, killable, as we will see. Jesus empties himself by becoming man and coming within reach of sinners who can despise him, reject him, wound him, and even kill him. I pause the hymn here to recall chapter 1. Do you hear that what Jesus does is exactly what Paul calls the Philippians to do in response to persecution? Put yourself within reach. If you are a follower of Jesus, help those who are being harmed and those who intend to harm you, even though it's risky and it will cost you and it will be painful because that is our Saviour's path. Jesus, who is God of all, moves towards us and accepts all the hurt and all the harm that comes with being near sinners. So when He calls to you, don't be afraid. He knows what it will cost. And still He calls us to come. But before it is a call to us to respond, friends, I must emphasize the coming of Christ first calls us to realize two hard truths about ourselves. First, that sin is major, for the Son of God Himself came to ransom us. And if God's Son had to come, then our sin is no small problem, but a big problem. But worse, sin is not just major, but personal, for the Son of God Himself comes, not a deputy. And the personal coming of God the Son tells us your problem with God is personal. You and me personally in rebellion against Him. So God came personally to effect reconciliation, to repair at His cost what we had broken. Would you let that spotlight your sin and show it for what it really is? Consider what we discussed earlier, that sin of pride. Pride is then not an interpersonal problem, how I treat you, how you treat me, but pride and every other sin that we commit is first a sin of rebellion against God. We refuse to treat others as God calls us to, and we refuse to treat God's word, His good law and command to us with the right reverence and the right obedience. I'm saying, friends, that this is heavy. When we fail to treat each other in this church as important and precious worth loving and listening carefully to and suffering for because of our self-importance. That is personal rebellion against God. And Jesus comes for us. That's what we mean when we say that Christ emptied himself being born in the likeness of men. And we will next speak of the cross. But before I go there, Friends, I hope that you would return home. Can I ask you to do that? And read your Gospels with new eyes. Read of how Joseph and Mary grab the baby Jesus and flee from Herod the baby killer. And realize that the cross is not the first encounter of Jesus with death, but his whole life was a descent. The Son of God, who gave Herod life, came into this world in such a weak and humble way that he was at risk of Herod taking it away. The life giver is at risk of losing his life. Do you, do you see, from the moment of the birth of the baby, death is not far behind. And as we read on, it is chasing and chasing him through the Gospels, through Herod, through the angry crowds, through the Pharisees who plot. And then finally, on the cross, it looks like death catches Jesus. At least that is what you and I see. But when we turn in the next verse to God's perspective, what we see is not a frightened Jesus who is fleeing, but a faithful Jesus who is giving. A faithful Jesus who is giving you himself. Even death. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. He humbled himself. Do you see? Christ is not on the run. He gave himself to Judas, to Pontius Pilate, to the nails and to the wood. The cross was the obedient choice of Christ. He gave himself for us. And that means that humility for Jesus is not a feeling or an emotion, but an action. He humbled himself by becoming obedient. John 10 says, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This charge I have received from my Father. Christ chose the cross.
Why? Why give himself into the hands of sinners? Friends, verse 8 is often taught as Christ descending to the lowest place. And there were many ways to die then. This was the shameful way, the, the disgusting one. And that's all true. But why? Why did he go there at all? One reason why Christ came to the cross was because that was where we were when he found us. And that's really bad news. If you follow this, the life and the descent of Christ tell us that there is only one place where that personal rebellion of sin against God will lead. To turn away from the giver of life is to walk ever deeper into darkness and finally death itself. That is what we do when we are left to ourselves. And that's bad news. But Zechariah's song, sung about Christ before the birth of Christ, says this, Because of the tender mercy of our God, the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Now that is good news. You think that you are insignificant, but God has seen you. Though left to yourself, you have walked a path that leads to darkness and death. Jesus has come for you. Jesus is on the cross, the ultimate place of darkness and death, because he's taken our place. Like the Philippians who faced jail, he was afraid, but he would not leave us. Friends, this is no traditional love story. When Jesus comes with arms of love, he is not received by us with arms of love. The Gospels testify, right? We rebel to the very end. Personally, we fight his rule till the very end, and that's bad news. He is not immediately beautiful to us, but the good news is that he wins us over. That's the mind of Christ. He did not come down from the cross for himself, but he stayed there for us so that even as the crowds poured out their hate and their rebellion against him, Jesus poured himself out in love. At the cross, Christ outgives them. I want you to see that, that Christ can give so much more than sin can take away. So you and I lay down our sin and our pride willingly. We won't. We can't. We would grip it to our death if we could. But the death of Christ is that down payment on God's promise that he will do it for you. God wins. He's going to put an end to your sin. He will take the pride that you thought you could never live without away from you by giving to you His Son on a cross. Friends, this is the gospel. The cross is the lowest place. Crucifixion took place outside the city, outside the defined limits of human life and activity because this is a death that is not fit for humans. In other words, it is a point of no return when you go to the cross. And yet, Jesus is found there to tell us that God wants us as we are. He's in search of us. He's made the first move. I don't know if it was difficult for some of you to come through these doors and come to church today, but you need not hide. God is not afraid of your mess. He's on the cross. He's telling you that there is no point of the human condition that is beyond the reach of his healing. He has gone to the lowest place so that at our absolute lowest, we might have hope there's someone coming for us. In his humility, Jesus considers not his interests, but ours. He comes to where we are at cost. And that, Scripture says, is a life worthy of the gospel. In Jesus, we get to glimpse human nature at its most gentlest and most humane. It's unselfish, it's unafraid, and it is beautiful. Therefore, exaltation. God vindicates Jesus by raising him. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, don't miss the therefore. Because of the obedient self-lowering of Christ, God has lifted him high so that all might see that this crucified Jesus, this crucified Jesus, shares God's own name. He is God, that name that is above every other name. And that brings me such comfort to know that this Jesus is God and that one day, whether willingly or unwillingly, all will see him and worship because he is king, he is Lord, 
And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord of all to the glory of God the Father. To the glory. That matters. The cross is not just the justice or the love of God, but the glory of God. What happened to Jesus on that cross was wrong. It was the most wrong thing you could ever imagine. It was shameful. But we are not ashamed of the gospel because the way that He lived and died for us and bore our shame, that was glory. A life lived like Jesus is worthy of attention and praise because it is a life that perfectly images God. We have a humble God who serves. That's what Jesus' life tells us. Therefore, Christians, your discipleship must mean lives of unafraid and unselfish service because we follow this God. From this flows all our ideas of servant leadership or self-sacrifice. Um, you can read Tom Holland's Dominion or Glenn Scrivener. Right? There's no shortage of books tracing how the self-giving of Christ changed history. It made taking the lowest place a virtue. So that if you are a Christian, then alongside your selfish ambition, you will also find, as you look at Jesus, a growing desire to for His sake and for your neighbor's joy, go low to serve because that is worthy living. For the one who served us all the way to death lives as Lord of all. That is the glory of God the Father and that is the glory of the cross such that self-giving love to the point of death, that's like the Christian's name card. That's the cross that you find in your homes and around your necks even in tattoos, it's how Christians are identified today. So that's our sermon. This is the gospel story. The Son of God, who could not die, borrowed our flesh to die and to take our curse for us. That's why lives worthy of the gospel are lives that are lived unafraid of death and unselfish with the life and the energy and the love that we do have from God. If you're joining us today and you are new or not a Christian, I hope you see why we love this story. We love to tell the story of Jesus, how He loved us, came for us, and brought us from death to life. Christians have the same struggles that you do. I wrestle with self-worth and with wanting to earn love as well. But Jesus died for me and He calls me beloved. That is what has freed and is freeing me. We don't counter self-importance by looking down on ourselves because then we are still looking at ourselves, but we look out at each other because we are looking at Jesus for His sake. If you have questions about this, can I say, come and chat. I'll be up here after service. I would love to share more. None of us in this room are the finished product, but we believe that God has begun a good work in us and we are trusting Him to complete it. And to my fellow Christians, I wish that I had read this passage better when I was a younger man. Being humble really was my desire to prove that I can do the hard thing. I really wanted people to know. I really wanted to believe that I was good enough. I wasn't. I felt so many times. But also, I, I don't want that anymore. If humility is just another self-improvement plan, to be humble for humble's sake, I don't want it. Because I've spent so much of my life living for myself and trying to fix myself. But do you hear today what this passage says? The sweetness of this passage is not being humble or being brave, as good as that is. Because humility and bravery at their very best are not human ideas. They are simply what Jesus is like. So these virtues are not the goal. Friends, Jesus is the goal. He is the sweetness that we are looking for. And, and humility and bravery are just little lights or little signs saying, come here, there's more of Jesus to be found by walking this way. Come here where humility is because there's more of Jesus here. That's what changed me. I, I don't want to be humble to be good for goodness sake. I want to be humble because I really want to be near Jesus. I live my life longing to be where He is. And some days I fail. But I really want to know what Jesus is like. I want to know the one whose wounds have paid my ransom. 
And I find that the nearer I am to humility and the more tightly I take hold of goodness, the more I know in my heart how sweet Jesus is. And there's come a point in my life where I say, you know, goodness me, I have no idea how I got here. I'm an elder of this church. I'm not who I once was. I really wasn't trying to be good because that only takes you so far. I just really want to be near Jesus. If you are a Christian, would you ask that of your father today? Tell him, say, I really want to be near my Jesus and if it means that my pride has to die, then put it to death. If it means that I have to ask for forgiveness and humble myself, please, Lord, let that happen in my life. If it means that I have to walk towards those who are suffering, though I'm so scared, help my feet not to falter. Because Christ is the one who is leading and Christ leads me through no darker rooms than he went through before. I don't know where the next step of faith leads, but he knows. It is enough for me that Christ knows. And as I walk that path of humility and bravery, I will be with him. Would you pray with me, friends? Dear Lord Jesus, you have died for us, and so we long to be near you. Because you live, we can face tomorrow. Oh, we are still afraid. We are still selfish. We still feel them eating at our hearts. But Lord, our love for you is stronger than our fear. Our love for you is bigger than all the fears and all the sin in our heart. You who have begun a good work in us. Father, won't you complete it? And won't you help us to desire to be nearer to our Jesus? He is ours so that the life we now live in the flesh, we live by faith in that Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.